Okay, good evening, everyone. Good to see you here, and uh, we're getting, having an opportunity to share together. Before we do that, Tim, I wonder if you, because um, I think uh, there, folks are interested, uh, uh, how's Mary Ann doing? Will you give us a little update on uh, what's, how is she doing? Because uh, people so loved and resonated with her when she was here, and so give us a little bit of of a heads up about our dear sister. Well, she's in recovery mode right now because uh, day before yesterday, she was with Eva, our four-year-old, at the playground. She saw another child by themselves crying, which is a siren's call for Marianne to head towards, which she did, but she didn't see the step that was going down. So she fell and badly twisted her ankle and her wrist. So in talking to her this afternoon, she had to be dri driven around for a day or so, but she was well enough today to go to the violin, re violin recitals, and so she's doing well. So I'll be picking her up this coming week, and I'm looking forward to that. That's so. great. Praise the Lord. Well, thank you for uh, bringing, that, uh, bringing us up to date there. Well, good evening, and uh, we're going to have a little conversation. Um, we have uh, highly scripted this conversation, haven't we, brother? <laughs> Actually, we have, uh, it, it, we have really have no idea where this conversation will go. Um, but I'm, just, I'm just having a sense it could be the last one I'm having here. That's what I'm having. <laughs> I, I, doubt, I seriously doubt that. Um, here's, here's what's interesting about this. Obviously, uh, we're delighted that uh, Tim is here, called as our Minister of Worship and Music here at the Village Church. And uh, obviously, there's a lot of thought goes into a process that brings our a brother like this uh, to our, our midst, and a lot of thought about uh, what constitutes worship and music in uh, not only any local church, but this particular local church. And uh, those conversations uh, certainly uh, existed in a search committee process among elders and, and certainly with uh, those who were candidates and certainly a lot with Tim. And, uh, and so we're going to sort of continue some of the conversations that we've had, and we're going to let these people eavesdrop on them. Uh, so that we can get a sense about, uh, you know, what, what our thinking is about uh, worship and music here at the Village Church. And I think that's our purpose this evening. And I trust that uh, people will be encouraged uh, to, to hear what, uh, what we have to say. Um, you know, first of all, let's, let's sort of start big picture and uh, talk about worship. Um, you know, before we get into to music stuff... Uh, because worship is probably one of those most misunderstood words in the church these days. Uh, can you uh, give us a, a definition of what you understand worship to, de to be? And let's start from there and see where we go. Well, to me, worship is our response to God's revelation to us. It's our response through our praise, through our adoration, through our thanks. It's a daily thing just because of who he is and what he's done through Jesus Christ. It's a response. It's our response to his. I was reading recently about this, uh, a, a theologian from years ago said, this is not God's show, this is our show. In other words, God is the audience, we are coming in, and we are, we are the actors in the play. Sometimes the pastors are the prompters of the words for us, for our script, but we are the actors, God is the audience, and I think oftentimes we forget about that. Mm -hmm. To me, there's a difference of coming into a place with expectations or expectancy. And I think we have a culture, we've fostered a culture over the past several years where people come in expecting something, not necessarily their connection with God, but expecting something else, as opposed to coming in with an expectancy 
of how God's going to meet them because they are responding to God's goodness. Mm -hmm. yeah. And of course, that idea of responding to God's revelation is not um, limited to a Sunday morning session or a Sunday evening session, is it? It really does affect pretty much all of our, all our lives. It's been George Barna, who does the surveys of a lot of things within the church, has over the years. Uh, he's pointed out that in his studies, churches that really promulgate a lifestyle of worship, such as with the Scripture Union thing, us doing that, prayer meetings and so forth, those churches seem to have a sweeter worship on the weekends in the corporate because the folks during the week are taking the time to express their gratitude and then send, when they walk in on Sunday, it's not like, oh, we have to do this now. It's a continuation, but now in a corporate setting, which is so important to all of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so when, when we gather, we're simply, uh, you know, connected with where we have been, um, you know, in, in our weekly activities. Um, unfortunately, I think we don't think in those terms often enough. Um, we don't uh, think that what we do on Thursday afternoon might relate to what kind of connection we might have on Sunday. And uh, so we need to respond in, in that way as well. Right. And that's, that's part of... Uh as Jesus told us to worship and, and to the greatest commandment, to love the Lord, heart, mind, strength, soul, and then also to love your neighbor. All those things are part of worship. And when we think about lifestyle worship, we're thinking, well, I need to go through the week doing like we do on Sunday. It's no, it's, it's God is, not, is more concerned about our heart on our relation than any elaborate thing we could do for him because we can't do possibly something that's elaborate enough to please him in that extent. And I think that's something that we miss. It's about the heart first, and we, we, uh, we kind of foster that heartfelt worship by who we are during the week. Mm -hmm. And then on Sunday, uh, corpus or corporate, it comes from the word corpus, which means body. And so on Sunday, we come in and continue that, and that continuation is a continuation that's been eternal. We're joining with those in heaven that forever have been singing around the throne and worshiping. We're part of that long-going continuation. So we do it during the work week, rather, and then we show up on Sunday, continue something that's going on and has been for eternity and will be for eternity as well, too. Absolutely. Now, of course, uh, backing up even a little further, the, the word worship really comes from an old English word, worthship. And so uh, all of our lives is essentially recognizing the worth of God, the value of God. Um, and that can happen uh, in the way we speak to one another as well as is the way we sing uh, on Sundays and that kind of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think what's been misunderstood, uh, not misunderstood, I wouldn't say, but I think what we see oftentimes is people will leave a service. I've heard, I've done it myself. I didn't really get anything out of this morning. I, I just didn't get, you know, I didn't get anything. Of course, I always got something out of the sermon, but I didn't get anything out of the Good music. word, brother. Thank you. <laughs> I'm angling to stay. I, uh, I, I didn't get anything out of this morning. And, and how the point is, you weren't supposed to get anything. You were supposed to be giving. And if God chose to meet you, Barnes said that 50, about two-thirds of the people that attended church, this is a 20-year-old survey, but about two-thirds of people that attended church in one given year, more than uh, two-thirds of the people that attended said they did not feel the presence of God this past year. Now, where does that come from? That part of it can come from the lack of expectancy or the fact that 
I didn't like this, this, and this. This didn't please me, therefore I didn't get anything. And that's not just the music. It's anything like that as well, too. And it's, it's what we decided to give to the Lord. And this has been a real challenge for me, even as you were throwing these questions to me. Um, not throwing them. You handed them to me the other day. Because I started, I told the choir this morning, you know, I, I taught this stuff. And I, and I pulled out some of my notes and went, wow. Is this what you're doing? Are you thinking through these things like that? Because as a worship leader, there's nothing a worship leader can do to bring people closer to God. But sometimes we take it, we take it that, especially in music. Um, and that's not it. We're there to prompt. We're there to be a conduit that hopefully there's something, if it's scriptural or something we're presenting, that leads people into pointing upward or looking upward rather than looking just that and us. Uh, one of the things that, uh, as, as you know, and uh, obviously some members of our search committee know and the elders know, you know, we, we put together a document um, actually when we began the search process uh, that tried to help us uh, understand the nature of music and worship in the Village Church. And one of the terms that we used, uh, and I think you've sort of alluded to the issue, was God-centered worship. And it might, it might be helpful to, to talk a little bit about what that means. Why would we even need to, to use that term when you, when you think about coming to a worship service? But a lot of worship these days in various churches is not all that God-centered, is it? Right. No, and, and I don't denigrate the people that are doing certain things or planning certain things, but I think God-centered means simply everything that is done in that service is pointing upward. It's scriptural. It's... It's prayers that are God-centered. It's, it's not worried about the programming so much as it's worried about are we doing a response? Are we giving that response to God in every element of the service and then allowing him to do his work at that particular point in time as opposed to necessarily worrying about the elaborate, even the programming of things. We get so wrapped up into things like that oftentimes, and, for, and rightfully so sometimes. But that's the first thing that comes to my mind when I think of God-centered. And you're right. When I look at that on the paper, I go, well, of course it is. But there are times that I, I have to confess that in years I planned a program and I got through it. And went, well, everything went well. Okay, programmatically it did, but what about, what about the elements that hopefully reached the folks because they connected with the Lord? Was that something that was uh, primary in my thinking? And that's, I think, what's meant by that. You know, the, the, the notion of, um, of being God-centered reminds me of some, a fundamental principle of sanctification where uh, Jesus, you know, said that if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. You know, and that, it makes sense perhaps uh, for us to hear that in Scripture or have some preacher talk about that, that kind of issue. Um, but if we apply that to worship, we discover something interesting that when we forget ourselves and focus on God, we end up actually having a satisfied soul. In other words, God does something in us that, uh, that meets us and, uh, and gives us a sense of his presence and delight and pleasure, but it's because we have come to this place of worship focusing not on us. What do I want? What do I feel I need? Do I get anything out of this? We go to him, and then in a, in a strange, remarkable, uh, upside-down way, God then feeds us, and he gives us satisfaction, not because we're looking for our satisfaction, we're looking to please him. That's where God-centeredness comes in 
and satisfies the human soul. And that's difficult because, because we're coming out of a culture that is all about the individual and all about the things that we want and what we need and how we please ourselves and so forth. It's very difficult to just leave that at the door mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden come in and go, I'm going to set that aside now and now I'm going to look up. So if you're able to look up during the week, if you're able to conquer that during the week and everything you do, um, I think that kind of helps you as you get to the weekend as well, too. Absolutely. Now, of course, uh, you're the, the minister of worship and music. So what's music got to do with all this stuff? We've been talking about worship, giving uh, you know, worth to God, glory to God, uh, and orienting ourselves toward Him. How is it that the church throughout all the ages has used music of one sort or another? Sometimes they fought over what kinds of music uh, they can have. <laughs> yeah. But uh, what is it about music that enables us to, to, to worship particularly in a corporate setting, but uh, certainly in any setting. Well, again, music does reach the soul. I think there's nothing, if you ask any 10 people about a, something musical, there's definitely strong opinions about what, what connects with them, what uh, ministers to them, what moves them. I've been in so many situations where I've talked to someone after a service and uh, they've come in in a very difficult place and yet they couldn't, they couldn't take any more words, but they could take some melody. They could, say, they could take the words put to a melody simply because it's something that reaches us because regardless of our artistic bent, we all have something in us that connects with God put within us that song, a different song for each, but it connects to us all in different ways and sometimes, definitely sometimes, when words cannot, when people are hurting when there's losses, when there's death, when there's things like that. Silence is wonderful. Music, uh, words, we, we don't know what to say, but yet there could be a song, uh, a remembrance of something in the past that just meets the need and, uh, and does better than any only words could do. And I think God put that in us specifically. And throughout the years, all types of music have done that, and that's where, we, that's where the rub comes now and then as well, too. Um, it, it's interesting when we think about the musical associations, we all have a history of music in one form or another, and probably everybody's uh, history is a little different, um, obviously, but, uh, but it really does connect with us with uh, remembering where we have been, how God has led us. Um, it's like what, uh, what Moses said to the people of Israel back in Deuteronomy, remember the way God led you and how music evokes those kinds of memories and brings us to a place where he said, oh yes, God didn't meet me there. Those associations are important, aren't they? And I think there's, there's positive and negative associations as well too. Um, interesting, playing that song this evening that I opened up with, Jesus Led Me All the Way, as I was sitting playing and I looked at it, I just happened to, when you're doing music, sometimes your mind wanders and you're just playing things and you're looking at things at the same time. And I noticed the copyright was 1954, but that arrangement was 1968 or 63. And all of a sudden my mind went back, well, I remember I played this in church as a teenager. And, but then also I remember the words, Jesus led me all the way, I will tell the saints and angels as I lay my burdens down. Jesus, I never sang that a lot, but for some reason, those words stuck with me. And they're in my heart. I find myself now, even though I've been in all types of music from the uber contemporary to the traditional, I find myself oftentimes 
in my mind walking around singing a hymn. I was singing channels only the other day. I'm going, when in the world have I sung channels only recently? But, I, but it's something that was planted in me. But the same thing with that musical style also prevents folks from accepting other styles as well, too, because there could be a negative connotation for a particular style of music, regardless of what that style is. Yeah. It's interesting when you, when you mention that, it brings to mind uh, um, when Gene and I were at uh, the Sing conference back in, um, I guess, early September. Um, Keith and Kristen Getty put this on with a wide variety of musical styles. And one of the guests they had was Bill Gaither. Okay, so Bill's, I don't know, 80-something, and, and they were having a conversation, and then Keith gets up, and he walks over to the piano, and he sits down and plays the Gaither, a Gaither song that he had his mother play when he was like eight years old. And they sang it together, and the whole crowd erupted and this was, you know, something that probably Bill wrote in the 50s or something right. like that. Right. I can't remember what it, what it was, but uh, that association with someone who's involved in a lot of different kinds of music, nevertheless, right. here's, here's Bill Gaither, and he sits down at this piano, and it was just a lovely moment. Can I tell you a great Bill Gaither story? I, was, uh, I taught in Indiana Wesleyan, and Bill lived in Alexandria, not too far from Marion to the uh, university. Marianne and I went to a movie theater one time, and I dropped her off. I went inside, and she was standing alongside somebody, and she's, she said, Tim, Tim, this is, you know, you know, the guy, the guy with the wife. This is, this is, you know, you know. I'm like, what? And he goes, I'm Bill Gaither. And I said, oh, Mr. Gaither, nice to meet you, and so forth. Then Marianne and I walked away. The poor guy was just shaking his head. But then the next day on Facebook, I wrote, Bill, I met Bill Gaither, and yes, he touched me. <laughs> Got the most response I ever got on Facebook. <laughs> it was right. a great one. Yeah, that's <laughs> But great. you're right. You know, and even Bill's music, it, it's, it's all cyclical. It took um, about two hymnal revolutions until he broke in with, uh, mm. like, Because He Lives or some of the old more contemporary hymns. Right. It took those. And now some of them have remained and are still just like the Gettys. It took on about 10 years of In Christ Alone mm -hmm. to get into one of the hymnals. It becomes part of the hymnology because it's a different style and it takes a while for people to, to, right. to uh, connect with it. But if the words are there and the theology is there and the sense of God's greatness is there, they, they last. Mm -hmm. Now, here, here's something. We'll change gears a little bit here and, and, uh, and talk uh, about um, how we learn doctrine because I have come to realize that I stand up here every Sunday and teach doctrine and pretty much nobody remembers much of anything, okay? And then we sing stuff and that's what people remember. They, they, uh, they end up singing their theology and learning more than that, than, more than they do from the preacher. Uh, and so, you know, so for instance, uh, you know, it just occurred to me, uh, we talk, in fact, the, the document that the elders wrote talked about, um, you know, the Trinitarian dimension of, of worship and how, how we, uh, there's so many hymns related uh, to the various members of the Trinity. Um, you know, there are hymns, hymns like For the Beauty of the Earth, which talks about the creation of God's creation. And there are plenty of hymns about uh, the, the atoning work of Jesus and all that Jesus did, the blood of Jesus. And then there are, you know, songs obviously about the Holy Spirit and, you know, Spirit of God descend upon my heart. And there are hymns that actually are Trinitarian in their structure. Mm -hmm. 
that uh, teach us some things. Talk about the instructional value of the things that we sing and what it means to a congregation. Well, our, our theology should drive our worship. And our theology is Trinitarian, so therefore it should drive everything in within our worship. Um, God calls us to worship. God the Father calls us to worship through the work of his Son, and we are encouraged and brought to that through the Spirit. And I think what you said basically is, is what I've seen as well, too, that we should be praying prayers, we should be singing songs, we should be speaking of each member of the Holy Spirit. God in three persons, blessed Trinity, the end of holy, holy. There are words, there are songs, rather, as you said, that continue to share that with us. And I think oftentimes, again, something that is said is not grasped as much as something that is, uh, as, as sung. But I don't think I can improve about what you just already said. <laughs> well, <laughs> he's saying all the right stuff, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we, we do uh, learn an incredible amount and retain it because of the nature of, of music. And so that's certainly a powerful dimension of it. But it's even beyond that. There's a sense in which um, we are called upon to recognize what, is, what constitutes beauty. And, and beauty is one of those words that's probably even more misunderstood than worship in the church these days. Uh, we're told in the sort of uh, uh, relativistic world, our, our culture, that beauty's in the mind of the beholder and you decide yourself what's beautiful and uh, all kinds of things that, that uh, I might think are disgusting, some people regard as, as beautiful. But there is such a thing as, as genuine beauty from God's perspective. And, uh, and, and music is designed to express that kind of thing. So tell, tell us what you think about how to understand beauty in the context of, of, of music and worship. I think within the church, we biblically worship the Lord and the beauty of his holiness. Holiness and beauty kind of relate in the same way there. Beauty, well, that's a tough one to me. Um, it's so hard to divorce that from just individualistic, as you said, thoughts. Um, beauty, in, in my mind, I can equate that with pleasing, pleasing to the Lord. Is it is something pleasing to him? In my mind, something pleasing is beautiful. Now, again, musical styles, uh, if that's pleasing to you or you may think that's pleasing to him, I may not. That's where the individualism goes in, but that's where it's the heart. I, it's, if the heart is generating the beauty or the thought of what is beautiful, I think God accepts that and God understands that. And, and it is almost individualistic. I, I don't know how to get past that one. Help mm -hmm. me. Yeah. <laughs> well, obviously, there, there, are, there are theories about beauty, and that's, uh, it's, it's sort of hard to, uh, to recognize um, the validity of those kinds of things, except that the scriptures do allude to it. It's kind of one of those things that we may have a hard time defining it, but hopefully as we grow in the mind of Christ and as we grow in our, in our life in sanctification, yeah. we begin to be able to resonate more with that which is truly beautiful and, our, uh, and find ourselves put off by that which is not so beautiful. I, I know that there are things that perhaps I appreciated musically in the 70s that to me don't hold any appeal today when I think about it. Um, but hopefully I've grown more to recognize the kinds of things that are genuinely beautiful 
and that uh, would uh, be pleasing to God. I think pleasing to God is an, an important dimension. And of I it. think and the more we build the scriptures into our thinking and the mind of, the more we gain the mind of Christ, we're more able to recognize those kinds of yeah, things. Yeah, it's a maturity level in everybody. And, and I think that's what it is. Something which was obviously that at a particular point, at one particular point of our Christian life, and as you said, our sanctification it may change later on and not be the same as well, too, as God reveals something yeah. else to us as well, too. You know, uh, my wife had a, a voice teacher. Uh, she's had several over the years, and one of them in particular uh, talked about um, listening to certain singers uh, to get to the place where um, you started to train your ear to recognize that which is genuinely beautiful singing. And uh, so there was a process in which uh, you were transformed in what you heard uh, so that you could actually express those things appropriately. So it, it, it's sort of an analogous kind of thing that we need to be trained in the, in the holiness of God because the holiness is beautiful. Now, to the unbeliever, holiness is terrible. <laughs> but to the believer, holiness is attractive. Uh, you know, it's, it's like uh, Moses approaching the burning bush. And it's a terrifying experience, but he went there. You know, he goes, he's attracted by this bush that is burning but not consumed. And so uh, the holiness of God in, in all of its magnificence, um, you know, draws us in. And the more we grow in, our hol in holiness ourselves, the more we begin to recognize what is truly beautiful. And I think we become more discerning. Mm -hmm. But again, that falls, it could fall into that stylistic discerning. Is that still, am I discerning that because of that particular style or is it because it's, I'm understanding that is pleasing to God? And that's, that's, that's the question in yeah, there. Yeah. Now one thing that's often related in discussions of, about beauty and particularly in, in worship uh, where you have people who are uh, really presenting something um, that has some qualitative dimension to it. You know, like your, the choral music that you do or, or what Claire plays on the organ or what you play at the piano. Uh, there's a sense in which you desire a level of excellence. And that excellence is supposed to reflect the beauty of the Lord as well. And, and yet, um, as excellent as we desire, it's never perfect, is it? You know, but so talk to us a little bit about um, what, uh, what excellence in worship, uh, how, how it can be understood in the context of God's people in a particular place doing their best to please God with the gifts that they have to the best of their ability and how that feeds into helping us experience the beauty of, the, of God. Well, I'll talk about it from the musical preparation side in that um, the folks that I've always worked with, we've always challenged them to prepare your best. Um, there was a statement by Elton Trueblood that I had, um, I, I got to know it from uh, Stephen Nielsen and Ovid Young when I worked with them many times. And we had it in, in our choir room in Fairhaven Church. It said, holy shoddy is still shoddy. Okay, and it simply meant that, you know, no matter what you, it was like, well, it's good enough. We, we got by there. No, it, it isn't. And, and I believe musicians and those of, 
of us that are called to be ministers in whatever we way, we, we, we go to a higher purpose in our own art, in our speaking, in our music, in our preparation. We deserve to give the absolute best. David said, I'm not going to give anything that's, you know, that's not worth, worthy of the king back to the king. And so, David didn't say that. Did David say that? Who said that? Sounds like it. Okay, thanks. Oh, thanks. You're a help. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> The point is, I don't want to return anything to the Lord that I don't feel I'm as prepared as I can be. If I'm not prepared, some mistakes happen. That, that's inevitable. We're human. That's going to happen. But there's still a level of preparation that I think we can do our best, and then we hand it off. Anytime we've done a program or even on a Sunday morning with the choir, I feel, okay, we prepared. Lord, this is for you. We've done our best. Take it from there. If we make mistakes, that's okay. But I think it's that... That sense of, and again, what's the difference between the performance and the actual, how do you define a performer? Am I, am I performing here on a Sunday morning? Well, the definition of a performance is doing something that's difficult or challenging in public, okay? So if I add that doing something difficult or challenging in public as a ministry with a sense of wanting to serve, tag that on to a performance, and yes, I'm performing. I'm doing something that I've taught to do and learned. But I'm also doing it for a reason. I'm doing it for a purpose, to, as a servant and so forth. And that's what is the impetus as we try to do our very best. Yeah. You know, obviously, motivation has a lot to do with how all of this is evaluated by God. And, um, you know, you, you can perform, you can work hard, you can do your best so that um, you experience a, a sense of the accolades of the people who appreciate uh, your gift. Um, and that's certainly one motivation, but it's been such a delight to be able to, to experience and, and participate with very gifted musicians who don't have that attitude, right. who really have the attitude of this is an offering to the Lord, and they're willing to do everything they can to prepare and to be as excellent as they possibly can be, but it's not for them, it's for the Lord. And uh, that's, that, that's not an automatic kind of thing. It really does require yeah. uh, a, a people to be in the right place spiritually uh, to provide that offering. Well, if you've taken lessons, if you're an organist or a singer or uh, whatever musician you are, you've been taught to perform. You've been taught to do it well to get a response back from people and to get a satisfaction with yourself. Um, at Fairhaven, for all those years... Um, Every year we would do a, a large dessert theater and concert afterwards. Took a lot of work, very satisfying, and we saw it was just a lot of fun. But I, I got a sense one year that we were losing our, why are, not why are we doing this, we knew why we were doing this ultimately, but yet it, we were looking a little bit too much for the response. Um, and so one year I got, I, after we did the concert, um, about three weeks later, I got a, a, a lovely card from someone that said, someone actually that was a paraplegic and was not able to go to a concert he wanted to go to, so, but instead his mother brought him to the, the, the church concert. He was very touched and, and wanted to donate or something, and just he said, this really changed my life being able to do that. And so at that point, that became what we looked for every year. We, we got off, we, we, we did. We said, okay, Lord, this year, and this was probably like 95, 90, 94, 95. So we had, I had another six years of doing the same thing. So every year as we got into, our, into the concert season, we would pray, Lord, we're, not gonna, we're gonna wait to see what, what you respond back to us when we're done. And without fail, every year, 
Maybe it was sometimes it was a couple months later, but we heard back from somebody that had been touched by something that had been done. Now, we weren't looking for that. We were in a sense that we weren't looking for immediate, the immediate gratification. We're saying, Lord, take our efforts, use them, and we humbly ask you that you let us know at some particular point has it been used. And that delayed gratification is really hard for the performer because when you finish something and there's a big ending and you're like, okay. And um, it's very hard in churches too. Some people go, uh, and amen is kind of falling out of practice. My grandfather, I could always rely on him. Amen. I could always rely on that, you know. Uh, but nowadays, we don't know what to do. We don't know what to say amen. We don't know if you clap. We don't know what we should do. But we're waiting for that immediate gratification and to be able to get musicians to understand that God is immediately gratified by your efforts. Let's leave it at that, shall we? And that's hard for the performer. Yep. Um, you know, when you talk about the response, obviously one of the things that every church, I think, or at least the vast majority of churches deal with uh, after performances, even in the right best sense of the word, is applause. And that's a hard thing. I mean, people have really strong feelings about doing it, not doing it. As a pastor, I, I don't know how <laughs> to, to essentially deal with, with that. Um, you, you know, how do, we, how do we understand the right use of that kind of, a, of expression? Because it is an expression of something. You know, are, are, we, are we saying, you know, isn't that singer wonderful? Or what are, what are we supposed to be saying when we respond as a people? And uh, I, I don't think it's, it's appropriate to simply sit there and do nothing. Right. right. So tell us a little bit what you think about The years that. I worked in New York City, I mean, if you just kind of went like this, people applauded. Because it was New York City. You just applaud everything there. I would do a choir anthem. And the choir, and as soon as the anthem would be over, I'd have us go to a worship course. I would do everything. And then even at the end of the worship course, they would applaud because they figured they had to wait. But the point is, I think, I have no problem with applause. I don't when it's been okayed by the pastor who is saying, you know what, okay. Now, sometimes I, there would be times when I would say, folks, this is not going to be appropriate to applaud here because we want what's being sung to resonate in your hearts. This morning when we sang, At the Name of Jesus, you know, Scripture, right down the line, which is just so touching, and we're singing, At the Name of Jesus, there should be an amen. There should be something at the end of that because there's an affirmation of what we've done. Could be, there be applause? The applause, what would it be? It would be an emotional response, possibly for the volume, possibly for how well the choir did, possibly, hopefully, for the truth of just what we sang, what we just sang. So I think those that are, but does that go through your mind at the time when you're about ready to applaud? Okay, which, which one is this for? Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't. I think I was hoping for some help along these lines, brother. Well, you know what? To me, to me, in the appropriate time, we're going to do the the service of lessons and carols in a couple of weeks. And I noticed at the uh, perform, uh, perform, oops, at the concert a couple of years ago here, that was so wonderfully done by the choir that Jack directed. There was applause after every number, and that was fine. Maybe it was a concert venue; it was different. But when do when we do the lessons and carols, I would like to tell folks. This is not after each one of these. This is because the continuity of the scriptures lead into the story. Just let these things sink in that time. And I think you have to be verbal about that. You have to say, we're in a venue now that if, if that's the response you want, fine. 
Um, so I was visited a couple weeks ago by a, a former choir member, and he said, you know, I, I wanted to applaud at the end of that choir number because it was lovely. And then somebody, and the person I was sitting with said, yeah, of course, if you started, then you'd hear a couple. Then you always get those lames about three or four people clapping, and people go, oh, we're supposed to be doing that, better not stop, that type of thing. I, I think it has to be explained. Either you just let your heart desire what you feel should be the response or not, mm-hmm. and that's up to you. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anybody else with another opinion around here? <laughs> You know, I think it's important to also recognize that a lot of times applause can be uncomfortable for the performer. That the last thing that a performer wants when they are offering something to the Lord is to have that kind of applause. And I would hope that in a congregation like this, that the vast majority of us would be recognizing that God is glorified in this particular ministry and that we are praising God for this rather than praising the performer. And the downside of the applause is that what happens then, the congregation feels everything needs to be applauded Mm -hmm. constantly. And, but these folks here, and and this is the truth, even I've seen this in the past two months, uh, their love for the Lord, their sensitivity, I think gauges that. They can understand that more than, and and when uh, when somebody gets up to sing or to, it's, there's certainly nothing wrong by saying, you know, if, if, if applause is a normality, saying, at the end of this, please just let it sink in your heart and leave it at that, or saying amen. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, about the importance of singing together as a congregation. Um, there was a lot made of that in the, in the document that the elders adopted, and it's sometimes uh, kind of a lost art in many contemporary churches because a lot of times they... Um, the uh, instrumentation is uh, amplified to such a degree you really can't hear uh, people in the congregation. But but uh, we have some different thoughts about that. What's the what's the importance, the value of a body, of a community of people uh, singing together in ways that uh, they reinforce one another? Again, it's uh, it's echoing what's going on in heaven uh, around the throne, constantly singing praises to the Lord day and night in perfect pitch and never making a mistake. Um, and I, in all seriousness, that makes me so sad when I've, and I, I love contemporary worship. I've been a part of it. I've worked with college kids in it. But I've also walked into places where, wow, the, the band, the singers are great, but you can't hear. And I look around and, and really nobody's singing because, because I can't hear you singing. And unless I'm a soloist and narcissistic and just want to hear myself, I'm not going to sing. I'll just sit, stand there, and, and listen. That's a cultural thing. It's, an, it's a generational thing as well, too. Um, working with college kids, I've, I used to ask them, well, what about you know, when, you, when they get to that one particular point in the worship song, and they show the guitar player going off for 16 measures and so forth, you know, what is that to you on the video? And I'm, myself, even though I appreciate the musicianship, I just kind of... The, when I've been drawn into the worship trying to give, and I'm musical, so I'm just saying, now I start watching, wow, this guy's pretty good. And to me, I lose that. But I ask them, I say, oh, no, no, that's just part of our worship. We, we're just engaged, and we're appreciating his level of excellence and so forth. It's like, well, okay. But the idea of singing, if I can't hear you sing, um, if I can't get a sense that I'm being supported, I, we're back to that in the individualistic thing that our whole culture does. And um, you're kind of left out there, and I feel it's, it's very sad when we can't support each other in that. Yeah. I, in heaven, you're not singing by yourself. 
That's right. Uh, we, we feel really so strongly about the value of singing together as a body and being able to be heard with one another. One, one uh, person uh, that I heard recently, uh, a, a scholar of these, these kinds of things, um, indicated that singing together like this is one of the ways that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That we're doing this with each other because we're part of a body and just like we, we might um, be willing uh, to, uh, to submit our will to another person in, in a committee meeting, here we're submitting ourselves to one another in our own worship with the Lord and doing that together. Have you ever seen Wesley's rules of singing? I think I have. There's 10 yes. of them. And one of them yes. says, do not cry out bodily. B-A-D, how do you spell bodily? Loudly. Do bodily. not cry out loudly as to be heard above the rest. And, uh, you know, that's about what you'd have to do in some of the contemporary service. You'd really have to be yelling out to be heard about the rest, and you wouldn't be submitting. So that's exactly right. And if you're singing in parts, even if you're singing a cappella, and all you folks, because of, of the background that you have, you could sing parts when the music stops. You could keep on going. But part of singing in parts is listening to each other. Mm -hmm. And you have to submit to somebody else, otherwise you cannot yeah. harmonize. And that's a, that's a great point. That yeah. works out well. Well, since, since you brought the issue of, of harmony together, let's talk about choral music or choir music. Um, there's something very unique and special about a choir that has, uh, I think, increasingly been lost in the modern church. Uh, you know, choirs uh, have diminished and lots of churches that had them don't have them now. But what has been lost when choral music has been lost? What do we gain? What is it that is being taught and reinforced in us um, in terms of our um, understanding of the things of God, of beauty, of the nature of God, of the nature of the church? What, what are we seeing when we're watching these people work together to bring that kind, of, uh, that kind of music to our ears? Well, it goes to what you just said. You're watching a group of people that are submitting to each other, that are working together separately, but have become a unit or trying to work with each other. And I think the thing that's been lost, and I've, when I taught, we taught a lot about this to the students that were going into music ministry, that what you look, and worship teams are fine, that's great. But if you can have a choir, the whole thing is it's participation. You want to give more people a chance to participate, a chance to use their gifts, sometimes smaller gifts, sometimes greater gifts. But I had a choir of like 100 at Fairhaven, and there's a couple people in there that I wouldn't have wanted to sing, have sing individually. But the point is, they were in the group, they could participate, and it was just a joy for them. And it was also a, a congregational, it was a sense of encouragement. Um, it was a sense of caring for each other. It was a church within a church. It was a group within a group. Now, that can be fine with a worship team as well, too. I've worked with teams of eight or ten people that have had wonderful prayer and supported each other because we couldn't have a choir in that particular area. But to me, the value of the choirs has always been above the music, which can be very powerful, is just that this group, if they're loving each other and encouraging each other, regardless of what they sound like, and they sound good, but regardless of what they sound like, that is transferred, that's seen, that's felt by the folks out there. Mm -hmm. And that means a lot. And I think that's what's lost when you don't have that dynamic. It's what you lose when you don't have the dynamic of congregational singing because you don't have a chance to encourage each other and be part of something that maybe you don't, maybe singing in the choir is not your thing, but you love to sing and, and you're not going to sing if you don't hear others kind of, 
you know, drowning you out so you feel comfortable doing it and so forth. Yeah. You know, you know it, it occurs to me, and, and I've always reflected upon on this kind of thing, when you see a choir engaged in the music that they, that they do, it's, it's a picture of how God regards the beauty of the church. Uh, because what you have is a lot of people with very different gifts and backgrounds who have come together to sing a coherent song with all of the different parts represented and to do it in a way that is beautiful. I mean, harmony is not, this is not, uh, you know, John Gage or somebody like this or, you know, uh, some kind of discordant kind of thing. The, the, this is music that comes together uh, in a harmonic kind of expression that is uh, glorious and beautiful and that when God looks at the church, which is functioning together as a body, he sees that kind of beauty. And so when I look at a choir, I'm thinking this is how God longs to view the church in all of its beauty. Uh, it, re it re reminds me of, of Ephesians 5 and the beauty of the bride. And that's how God wants to see us. And I'm re reminded of that uh, every time I listen to the church choir do something of, of great beauty like it often does. And in all, you know, great frequency does that kind of thing. It's, it's a wonderful reminder of me of the beauty of the church. And, and, and the contemporary church that doesn't have that, I think, has lost something. They have. And, and there were some of us that were out as uh, prophets in the, in the educational world saying, you can do this. You can add this to that. You don't have to fire the organist when you, when you take over the, the service. There's ways that you can add the organ to what you're doing. And if you have a choir, there's a way that you can, in, you can involve them too. But unfortunately, we've gone through a period of, uh, of uh, I wouldn't say music education, but I would say of, of uh, uh, the sense of worship leading over the past 20, 25 years where it's been, okay, we have to go to this, we have to go to this team because it looks contemporary, it's this or that. It's more a sense of what looks, what, what, the, what, what the visual effect is. But that's, that's irrelevant. I mean, you can have a team and a choir, you can do all type of things, but you have to think, why are you doing it? What am I sacrificing? And I'm sacrificing maybe 30, 40 people that could be involved and want to be involved, but I'm not giving them that chance. Can I give them that chance? And I think that's really, really important because the more the people that are participating in the presentation and the, the uh, not the performing, but the presenting of the worship, the more people that are engaged themselves. And again, that comes across to the people out there as well, too. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, you studied in the, in the Robert Weber Institute, right? And, uh, you know, I think one of the things that um, Robert Weber left to us as sort of a legacy is uh, how to be connected with the past and grow into the future. And how does that relate? How do you think that uh, helps us through this kind of period that we're in in understanding how music can grow, but at the same time retain a connection with our traditions? Well, there was a period of time uh, when people within in music ministry saw the fact that, okay, there was traditional here, there's contemporary here, they're never gonna to touch each other and so forth. And then they came up with the idea, which I was part of too, was yeah, okay, we're gonna blend things together. But blend things, blended really became a quota. 
you know, as long as we do two hymns and then two choruses and we're even, everybody will be happy. <laughs> and it didn't work that way because, the, the, you know, these people wanted three and that type of thing because we're dealing with people. Whoever came up with, uh, didn't came up with, but renamed it Convergence, the sense of convergent worship of old and new, bringing the fact that there's a narrative f from time beginning through Christ to now. And we're part, we want, we want to, we want to acknowledge that narrative of worship, whether it be through liturgy, when we're doing the, um, the, um, uh, the creeds, okay, things that are from the 300s or whatever years they're from. We're part of something that has happened in the past. And that's the idea of the, the ancient future, not, not throwing away what is in the past, but acknowledging what is the past. And what in the past that we've learned and used can we use today? Okay, we can... What can we meld with whatever is reaching people in whatever contemporary, whether that's through the video, through whatever like that, how can that be melded with what has happened in the past? And in doing so, not just for the sense of quotas, for reaching everybody and making everybody happy, but to acknowledge that we've, we've had this sense of Christianity and, and the church fathers and what Christ has taught us through years upon years. We're not gonna discount that. We're not gonna start from the beginning. We're gonna build on that with perhaps something else. Acknowledging the old and then, not the old, but acknowledging the past and then looking to see what the Lord wants to give us to use for nowadays. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, uh, just finished teaching a membership class and one of the things that uh, uh, I spent some time talking about is, is how that if we're, if we're believers in Jesus, we share a communion with everybody who's a believer in Jesus, whether they happen to be in this local church or whether they happen to be all across the globe in Burkina Faso or China or someplace else. But we also share a communion with everybody who's believed for all time. And, and when we decide to divide up epics and then forget one, we have decided to cut ourselves off from a significant part of the body of Christ the church of Jesus Christ for all ages. And I think we, we do uh, a great deal of damage uh, to the body of Christ if we, if we do that. And so our musical expression uh, needs to have some kind of continuity and reflect that. It's one of the ways in which we submit to one another. We're submitting not only to one another in this room, but also submitting to one another across, in believers across history. The difficulty now, not so much here in this community, but a great deal of my studies was about the postmodern culture and the generation. And the postmodern thought is, you know, there's no, there's no moral standard. There's no, nothing is exactly true. I mean, there was so much that we all grew up with that that was wrong and right. Well, that's no longer the case. It, it's up to you. It's objective. We decide. And, and to approach now with that is within the services, within the, within the church, we can't do that. It is not now. There are truths that are object. There are truths that we want to look up from the past. We want to bring them. And we hear that in, in, the, in the songs that we sing, the great hymns that we sing as well, too, the modern hymns that we sing that have words in it that talk about yesterday. You know, that old, I haven't heard that. I want to do that here. The Alliance, yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. That popped into my mind the other day as well, too. All may change, but Jesus never glory to his name. Um, you know, that's an old song, but it's a great truth. You know, and what we were trying to do in the 80s, we were trying to reharmonize that and put a tune that was new to it. Well, it never worked because uh, it doesn't work well. But for that song, the truth is, in, is unchangeable. So how do we use those unchangeable truths in a world that does not believe in, in, a, in a, a, tr a standard of truth? That's a challenge. Um, but within our 
within our society, our, our church here, the ability to be thankful that we can acknowledge what went on in the past, and then what can we add that the God, what tool has God given us now to uh, complement the past? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, when you talk about those kinds of challenges, uh, let's just sort of conclude uh, with this. What do, you, what do you think are the, are the significant challenges in music and worship uh, for the church in general, or maybe even for this church in particular? What do you think, uh, what, what kinds of uh, obstacles do we need to navigate over, around, or through? Um, how can we approach things in a way that will, that will help us glorify God, and submit to one another, and enjoy the presence of God? Well, as far as I can see, there's not a thing wrong with this church. Okay? We good with that? <laughs> you know, honestly, it's the, Andy, it's the, Pastor Andy, Pastor Hawkins, it's the individualistic thing here that we have to get Saint out. St. Andrew is the appropriate term, Andrew, by the way, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're looking around for titles. <laughs> okay, thank you. It's Dr. Yoder to you, please. Um, what's, what's really important is getting ourselves out of the way. I did a survey at a Baptist church, yes, Baptist church I worked at in Pekin, Illinois, congregation of about six, 700. And I was young, early 30s. I thought, you know what? I'm going to see what the people really want. I'm going to take a survey. Now, there's foolishness in that, but I did it anyway. And out of those, I got about 150 replies, which is really pretty good for as a researcher. But what was, imp- what was, I will never forget, and this is honest truth. I'm flipping these surveys over one at a time. I flipped over one and it said, one said, what we really need in this church is some good country gospel music. It said, the music, the music leader, he's okay. But what we really need is some good country gospel music. I turned over the next one. It says, the music is okay. But if I ever hear a country gospel song in this church, I'm out of here. <laughs> Honest truth. Survey after survey. And that simply showed to me the individualistic nature of what, what we deal with. There's nothing so passionate to anyone here as their tastes in music. If you go into a church service, you have perhaps the sermon the prayers, the um, servant and the service, sermon, and then the prayers, and then the, uh, the congregational, sense of being congregational. I'm missing one. What was the other one I'm thinking of? Scripture, scripture reading. reading and the music. You're probably not going to have any problem with the way the scriptures are read and what the, you may have with the sermon, I don't know, but with the congregation <laughs> and so forth, but you're going to have an opinion about the music. So what do we do about that? What we do about that is we submit to each other. We understand, not, again, not necessarily in this body, but we under, even know when we want to try to bring in some, some uh, newer songs, newer courses that, are, are, that are, are music, have musical integrity and worships that uplift us. They're not comfortable, but they can be used. Okay, can I submit to learning something new like that? Is that a possibility? I think it's about us and how we respond. Um, and I'll close with this aspect of how do you, how do you get to that point? In the 90s at Fairhaven, um, we had a whole group of people go to Promise Keepers in Indianapolis at the Hoosier Dome, which is no longer there. We went to Promise Keepers, and it was all, these men went to Promise Keepers. And they were, I had never seen them lift their hands before. I'm like, what are they doing? They were so into the worship, it, which is easy to do when you've got 30,000 men. You know, you feel, okay, this is okay, I can do this. And they were so into the contemporary things that were being sung. When they came back, we came back to the church and said, can't we do this? we got to do this. Why can't we do these songs? We're doing all this old stuff. And I said, well, here's the deal. What you need to do is this. 
if we can, with all enthusiasm, participate in what a friend we have in Jesus with all our hearts and not go, oh, geez, an old hymn. If we can give ourselves to that, then we can bring in some other things and ask those, the folks that are only into that camp, they can give themselves to this, and it worked. Those, those men sold out to singing and being part of what to them was, oh, you know, passe to some extent. And at the same time, then we were able to introduce some new things. The folks, it was, it was a sense of coming together, submitting to each other in a musical styles, which was very difficult to do. And uh, to where we left, we had the pipe organ, the full orchestra, and the worship band. And we could put it all together because everybody said, okay, I know that I'm not really going to, you know, this is not going to resonate with me, but it's going to resonate with him, so I can, I can deal with this and then move on from there. And in doing so, I think God was pleased because we gave each self to each other. And that's monumental when we can do that. And really, it does come down to uh, growing in our sanctification, growing in our relationship with the Lord, uh, caring for one another, um, regarding one another as better than ourselves kind of thing for this particular kind of situation. And that really does enhance the capacity of our worship so that our, when we do sing together, it really does glorify the Lord. The Lord really is pleased. And that's the kind of thing that we, we love to drive at. Yep. Well, thank you, Tim, for sharing uh, your thoughts together with... Uh, I still have a job? My God. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, think the, I think the contract just got renewed for life. <laughs> I think that's how that worked. Uh, but in any, any event, uh, let's pray together, and then I think you have another song that we can sing, right? Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the opportunity to express genuine worship to you in uh, the musical opportunities that we have together here at the Village Church. We thank you for the leadership that you've provided in this area. We thank you for Tim and for Mary Ann. We can ask that you'll continue to bless them as uh, they, can, they continue to lead us. And we ask, Father, that you'll help us to grow in grace as we seek to grow in our worship of the living God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.